Welcome to Brownie and Blue Podcast with your host, MC. That's me. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at Brownie and Blue and make sure to check out the Heroes Podcast Network at heroespodcastnetwork.com and follow all the great podcasts that are offered in that network. This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. again with another episode of brownie and blue uh for my listeners and for those that are out there i have an incredible guest her name is lindsey mccall long she was an officer uh retired correct uh medically medically retired yes as of 2020 as of 2020 and um if you can go ahead i'm you know i I could do your credentials but i'd rather you do it and tell us (laughs) how great your career was how awesome you are still and um yeah just go ahead and break it down for us all right well first of all i'd like to say thank you for having me i do i do appreciate the the invitation and um uh i I just don't feel like i sound as exciting career-wise as other people but I started out my career in Georgia. Uh, I worked for Gwinnett County Police Department for about four and a half years. Um, Gwinnett County at the time was about a 650 person department. Um, and we, we stayed pretty busy in the district that I worked in. We had five districts at the time, they have more, but five districts and we, I worked in the smallest, but the busiest one. I mean, we stayed going all night long. So I think that was good. It was kind of trial by fire. <laughs> So you learned a lot of things quick. Um, and I mostly worked patrol. I worked um, narcotics and vice for about a year before coming back to patrol. And then um, in 2008, I moved to Arizona. Um, I, I'm sure you'll ask me why later. I moved to Arizona. I went from you know the humidity to the, the surface of the sun in the summertime. Um, and I worked for Paradise Valley Police Department for about a year and a half. It's a very tiny department. Um, at the time, there were 28 people from top to bottom. Um, affluent area. Um, the residents were great, even though some of them don't live there full time. They have houses in other places, but they loved the police department. And that was always nice. Um, and then, you know, I was like, I'm too young to be sitting still and not, you know, moving and grooving like I was before. And um, I met an officer who worked for Tempe PD which is in Tempe, Arizona, where Arizona State University is. And so after having a couple conversations with them, I was like, oh, let me go over here and see what this is all about. And I, I left um, in 09 and went to that department. And I worked there for about 11 years before my medical retirement. And But the majority of my, um, of my career, I worked in patrol. Um, I'm a people person. I love to talk. And it's just nice because patrol, you get to meet somebody different every day. You get to do something different. Investigations just was never my thing. Other special units, I think I would have gotten interested in over time. But, you know, I'm, I, I still like being out in the street. I still like being out with the people. Well, so how many years total was that for you in law enforcement? Um, 17 years total. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Gwinnett, Gwinnett is right outside of Atlanta now. Yeah, about, um, I'd say about 20, about between 20, 25 miles northeast of Atlanta. 
Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's it's pretty well known. I mean, I've heard of Gwinnett and, uh, yeah. you know, I, I've actually known some officers that used to be officers in Gwinnett County. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty big. Gwinnett County is the largest county in Georgia. I think Georgia has like 158 counties or something in it. And Gwinnett's uh, the, the largest one. And, um, you know, I'm, I miss Gwinnett. I have a lot of great friends still at Gwinnett County. Shout out to Gwinnett County PD. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, it's just being young and looking for something different and ended up out in the desert. So I got something real different. <laughs> well, so, so you brought it up, you brought up the question. That's obvious. Like why go from Gwinnett in Georgia to Arizona? My cousin, I had a cousin who lived out here and he kept saying, you should come check it out. And I was like, why do I want to move to the desert? It's dry, it's brown, like it's hot. Like, why do I want to come out there? And he's like, you should totally come visit. And I was like, uh, we'll see. So I took him up on the offer. I came out one spring. Um, and again, I was at a place in my life where I was looking for something. I didn't know what, but I was looking for something. A lot of people told me I was stupid for leaving because I kind of had it made to a certain extent at my first apartment. But I said, I need something more than this and kind of came out and I was like, okay, not half bad. Like the streets operate on a grid system. It's easy to find your way around. If you like being active, you know, you can be active here pretty much year round. If you're one of those crazy people that like to be out in this heat, you can do that. Um, (laughs) You know, and you can vacation within the state too. That's one of the things I kind of like about um, Arizona is it's one of the few places I've lived where it's different. Like if you go up north, there are trees that are actually green. And you're mm. like, are we still in Arizona? Yeah. You know, and then you can go south of where I live. I live in Phoenix, but you can go south in the Tucson and it gets, you know, it, it can be, be very deserty or you can go far south, you know, near the, the Mexican border. So it's just a wide range of things you can do here. And there's a lot of events here. I tell people like from January to April, this place is popping. Yeah. Um, if you like cars, we have the Barrett Jackson auto show, which is not too far from me. And we love going the waste management um, golf tournament. Hmm. Um, you know, when, you know, whenever baseball is going to do a baseball is going to do spring training is a big yep. deal here. Yep. And we have the Arabian horse show. So we get a lot of people here for those months and it's fun. Like, you know, the atmosphere is fun. You go to the restaurants, the vibe is different because you have so many out of towners mm-hmm. and then it gets hot. <laughs> <And> then <laughs> all the snowbirds leave, they go back to the Midwest and the East coast. And then you just stay inside in the air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> That's how that works. And make sure and make sure your kids aren't in the heat. And then when they get they yeah. act up, you get the shoe out. Yeah, listen, like, do you want to go stand outside on this hot porch? I don't think so. So go drink some water and sit down. That's awesome. So yeah. 17 years in law enforcement, you went from Gwinnett to Arizona, you left the affluent area, you still wanted to be a part of the mix of mm-hmm. from what it sounds like the mix of what you left in in Gwinnett which was police work right most people are mm-hmm. like okay well what is that you know police yeah. work in the sense of like investigation from the street level and talking with people community policing you know maybe getting out of your car walking a beat getting to know store owners <laughs> shop owners maybe getting to know the local drug dealer the pimp and stuff like that so is that what mm-hmm. you were talking about? Like when you went to Tempe, because Tempe is what? I mean, that's a huge city in Arizona. 
Um, well, Phoenix is larger than Tempe. Tempe is just, that's where the school is. So we have okay. a lot of students there. Now, um, Arizona State has their own police department, but that's right. for on campus. So we get a lot of the kids that are off campus and there's a, there's a mix. I mean, we have, we had everything from college kids. Um, if you go to South Tempe, there's really nice neighborhoods where, you know, there's some money and then we have, uh, we have a transient population also. Um, so you get a wide range, but yeah, just like you said, I am a chatty Kathy. So I love getting out and talking to people. So, you know, I know other officers that I worked with probably didn't view me as top cop, but in my mind, I was cool with how I policed because I liked talking to people. I like providing resources. You know, even if I was taking you to jail, I can talk to you like a person and offer you resources. So mm -hmm. maybe you don't have to call us again. And I'm not saying that in a way to just like, to just pawn you off, but to actually help you. Cause you know, people will call us for things that aren't police related because mm -hmm. they don't know who else to call or they're looking for that interaction with somebody. And I, I like that. Like you said, talking to the, like the, um, the managers at the apartment complexes and hanging out with, you know, some of the clerks at the QTs and, and stuff like that. And just getting to know people. I, I enjoy that. I know not all officers enjoy that, but I enjoy that part of policing because you get the opportunity, like who gets the opportunity to talk to different people every day and to be in different situations every day and, and to be able to form relationships with people too. Mm -hmm. Like I, that was the part about the job that I liked. I mean, I was not a ticket writer by any means as any supervisor I worked for. <laughs> so. <laughs> but that's the thing, right? Like, I mean, I love how you brought that up because unfortunately, and, and, you know, I have these questions, but organically, this is why I love this topic because part of all of this, right, is policing and people really don't know. They just see what's on TV. They see what's, mm -hmm. you know, put out there with the horrors of, you know, George Floyd or whatever the case is, uh, Breonna Taylor, and then they Monday night quarterback tactics and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. But the majority of policing, the 90, I would say the 95 98% of policing is what you're doing and what you're talking mm -hmm. about, which is out there speaking, talking, getting to know, building relationships with locals, whether it's, like I said, the people that are taking out the trash or the managers, or if you're in an affluent area, talking to just the local residences and mm -hmm. keeping track of, you know, because once they see a face, they understand you not only as a police officer, but they understand you and they, they respect you more as a human being, right? Oh, they, 100%. It's not Officer McCall Long anymore. It's Lindsay mm -hmm. or, you know, hey, how you doing? How are your kids doing? You know, that in a sense is exactly what community policing is. And the unfortunate mm -hmm. aspect of what you just talked about is not all officers see that or like that, but yet what are you in the job for? Because how mm -hmm. do you get, when you were in narcotics, how did you get most of your uh, criminal informants? It wasn't just because you were banging them over the head and telling them they had to work for you. You had mm -hmm. to, you, you, you had to what? Build a rapport, right? Build that relationship. I, you know, so my, when I was in vice, I was, I was partnered up with like the most opposite partner ever. Like we did not match at all. <laughs> so I don't know how we got together, but he was, he was, he was a, older officer. He'd been there a minute. He had been through some things. Right. And so here I am young, black, 
skinnier female than I am now <laughs> um, with, with braces. So I looked younger. Um, and then here's my partner, white guy in his fifties, kind of like a little mullet haircut. He had like the Harley Davidson feather earring and like the button down, like blue collar, you know, worker like type shirt or whatever. So we don't match. Like we don't match at all. But I loved listening to him talk to people. One, if uh, like an informant or if we were going to do like follow up on a case we got assigned because he's a recovering alcoholic. And when he would tell his story, I would be fascinated, even though I've heard it. I've heard it and we've talked about it. And I was always so proud of him. Um, he was, you know, not quick, but he would listen to the person. And I think because he was older and he knew how to talk to people, you know, because he started policing in the seventies, mm. you know? And so he, I'm assuming in the seventies, I hope he doesn't hear this and curse me <laughs> out, but let's say seventies and eighties, but he just knew how to talk to people. And I loved it because people would be so engaged with him when he talked about his own struggle with addiction, because that made him human. That made him be a human being right there when he talked about that. And they would just, you know, not that they were just giving up all the information, but I think they viewed him differently and they definitely formed that bond with him. Like, wow, like he, he understands where I'm coming from in a much different way than anybody else in my life. Mm -hmm. So I always admired that. And I tried to kind of stick to those type of human aspects of conversation because People see you in a uniform and they just assume you've never been through anything. And I was like, talk to some officers. Like I am, in, I am everything from amazed and inspired to like mortified by some people's past. And it's like, how are you standing upright right now? You know, people have trauma before they even get to the job is, is what I learned over the years. And, you know, I, I would share with people, you know, when I was 17, my dad was shot and killed when I was 17. What? And then people are like, oh, 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 okay. So it's like, you know, if I'm on a scene, it's like, trust me, I, I understand some of these emotions that you're feeling. Mm. I, I may understand some of the emotions you're going to feel later because some of my emotion didn't come out until down the line because I felt like I had to be a certain way at that time for my mom and my brother. Mm -hmm. And I tell people process that pain now. And then it's almost like, oh, okay, so you understand. Oh, I understand a lot more than you think. Yeah. You know, I just don't go to calls and report somebody else's pain. I've had my own pain over the years too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you know, we'll, we'll we're going to get to that pain here in a minute, but I just wanted to ask you, what was your influences or motivation to even become a police officer? is not as sexy as other people's. It doesn't need uh, to be sexy always. So. There could be a, there could be, you know, a simple motivation, <laughs> but you know, it's always interesting to hear the motivation. So the short of it is, and I'll explain it, but the short of it is I needed a job when I graduated from high school, uh, from college. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the short of it. I used to lie and make up something or tell people that, yeah, I wanted to do this since I was a kid. Not true. Um, I think I was always interested in law enforcement, but I wasn't sure what that meant or what that looked like. I think it was just always in the back of my head. And, you know, I loved all the cop shows when I was a kid, you know, Hunter and, you know, Chips and, you know, all that TJ Hooker. Like I used to watch all that stuff as a kid. I love the, you know, the lethal weapon movies and, and all that other stuff like that. But then now knowing what I know, and you look at those movies and you're like, that stuff is terrible. Who was the law enforcement consultant on this show? Like you can't, you 
can't solve a, a crime in one day like that. And you can't have this many shootings and they not pull you off your, your assignment. So, you know, I get it. It's romanticized. And to go back to what you were saying before, I think that's what a lot of people see and they think it's going to constantly be like. And then when they have to get into the talking piece, it's like, mm, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah. So um, when I was in high school, uh, I was in ROTC in high school. I was in uh, junior Air Force ROTC. And um, comes time to graduate. I had no plans of going to college, hadn't even taken the SAT. I just knew I was going to go into the military. And so I go into my instructor's office to have her sign off on my paperwork. And Major Greer looks up at me and she says, I'm not signing that. And I was like, why not? I want to go into the Air Force. And she was like, I'm not signing that. She says, I think you do better in college. And I was like, but I, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to go, I think I'd be good in the Air Force. And she says, I'm not saying that you wouldn't. I think that you would do great, but I think you're better suited for school. And I remember looking at her because like most of my friends from high school that I'm tight with today, mm -hmm. we were all in ROTC together. The majority of them, I will say 98% of them went into the military. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I said, all my friends are going into the military. And she's like, Miss McCall, some of them need to go into the military. And I was like, okay. So she says, go to school. If you don't like it, come back. I'll gladly sign your paperwork. Well, of course I go to school and I love it. I mean, I lived in the dorms, like, come on now. Um, and graduation comes around and now I got to do an internship. And I'm like, I don't even know what I want to do. So I picked Gwinnett County because it's where I lived. And I said, this will be easy. I'll just do this and graduate and figure something out. It was a 10 week thing. And I remember the first like two to three weeks thinking this is a dumb job. Who wants to babysit adults all day? Because <laughs> that's all I saw is, you know, yeah. you have to show up. You have to tell adults like I was 23 at the time. I don't want to tell somebody who's twice my age how to live their life. Like I've I was still living at home. I don't know life. You know, like I, <laughs> I I'm spoiled kid. My mom pays my bills like I don't I don't know life like that. And so, um, and you met my mom last yes, year, well, yes. via, you know, our, our, our interview for Mother's Day and, yes. <laughs> you know, you see her personality, right? So right. her thing was like, look, you got to figure out something. Either you're going to go to college, you're going to military, or you're going to get a job, but you're just not going to sit around my house. So I was like, all right, I'll give this internship a try. And I want to say like halfway through, I remember an, like a sergeant, like, really talking to somebody like a human being and connecting using like his fatherly presence to connect with mm. these two young women that were on a, a shoplift. And that kind of spoke to me because I, I like helping people. And I tell people, I know that sounds so corny. It's like, how, why do you like police? It's like, I like helping people, but <laughs> like I do. And I've kind of like, I've been that person. Like many of us, I think tend to be that people come to naturally mm -hmm. to help solve a problem or to vent to. And I, I that kind of spoke to me and I kind of kept that in the back of my head. And the more I rode along, the more they were like, yo, you should apply. And I was like, for what? Like, I, I'm a, I live at home with my mom. I'm a college kid. I don't know anything about life. I live at home with my mom. You don't want me. And they're like, you, you know, you're, you'll have a college degree. You did your internship here. You'd be a shoe in. And I was like, I don't know. Well, I applied. Um, and it, it didn't take as long as I thought, but I'm going to tell you this, after graduating college, it was a little depressing because I thought I was going to have all these jobs, right? Right. Go to college. I went to college. I graduated. I'm like, right. sweet. 
Bring on the jobs. Yeah. No. Cricket, cricket, cricket. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, well, we'll always need medical and we'll always need law enforcement. I don't like blood. So let's do law enforcement. Um, and, and people were like, yeah, but when you went to college, you majored in criminal justice. I said, I went to college because my mother would still pay my bills if I went to college. And I picked criminal justice because I had the least amount of math classes and I don't like math. <laughs> oh, so, uh, so here we are. Funny. But, you know, I got into the job and, you know, I really enjoyed the job. Like I really enjoyed all those aspects. We were just talking about the community aspect and things like that, because I discovered it was so much more than just taking people to jail, just writing tickets and just being stoic, you mm-hmm. know, on scene mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like, you got to There's a lot of different hats you wear as a police officer. And I think a lot of young people coming into it don't realize that. They, they, uh, you know? yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with you on that. And honestly, I had an officer, a partner of mine. I wasn't that stoic person, but I also wasn't uh, the best, I guess, showing like if I didn't like you or if you disrespected me in some way there was an aspect of that coming back at you in a professional mm-hmm. way. But mm-hmm. this one guy, uh, I'll give him a shout out, Phil Stone. He's been on this podcast and he was an incredible, just people person, even on the street, just such a nice guy. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying to me one day, he goes, you get more bees with honey. And that's always stuck with me. And that is, you mm-hmm. know, that, that that's even outside of law enforcement, even with people in general. You're going to get people that flock to you when you can just be kind and nice, even at their worst. Right. So, Mm -hmm. but, but that's something that you can't, you, you have to apply that. You have to practice that, especially Mm -hmm. if that's not you as a individual, right. It's not a natural thing for you. Then you're definitely going to have to see somebody who does a great job at it in order to mimic that. And you, and you have to like, not only do you have to practice, you have to want to be that person because you know, I, I think even with being stoic, if you know how to communicate people, it will carry you so much further in law enforcement, right? So communication skills, I think is something you have to have naturally and you can hone it, you can make it better. But if you don't have it, it's hard to teach somebody that. Yeah. It's really, really hard without them being like, wow, like, like you said, seeing somebody and being like, I like that because I always gravitated towards the older officers that I worked around and the the um, district where I, I worked the West Side District. And I had great older officers that I worked around, like to the point where people thought I had been there longer than I had just because of the demeanor that I took on. Right. And I said, they don't get excited about anything. They just kind of chill. They just kind of take their time. Nothing was a rush. They were great officers. But it was like, why are you moving so fast kind of thing? <laughs> And I I liked watching the senior officers talk to people. I had a sergeant, you know, I loved watching him talk. He was my first sergeant. And he later told me he liked the way I talked to people because I was real matter of fact with them, but I had a caring edge, but I wasn't going to let you run over me either. You know, I was going to be like, hey, (laughs) I hear you, but we got to stop all this yelling and get to the root of the problem. We can deal with the emotions in a minute, but why am I here? Mm -hmm. And let's go from there and let's respect each other. Um, So I always really, I always love that. Like, I like watching people talk to people and connect with people because that's a gift. Not everybody has that, you know, and for some of us who have it, 
you know, even when people compliment me or say something like to me, mine isn't to the level that I want it to be. I'm glad people see it, but I still look at other people that are great communicators and be like, man, like I want to implement that. Like, I like that. Cause that, it may have worked on me or you just watch how someone else just opens up and they're like, they feel comfortable. And next thing you know, they're, you know, they're telling their whole life story over there. Yeah. You have that. And then the reverse or not even the reverse, but the antagonist of that is the opposite of an individual that comes in and you have this rapport and you have everything settled. And then what you have the one person that comes in and stirs it all back up again, because they just want (laughs) to be that, you know, Mr. Authority or Miss Authority. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is what I'm telling you to do. And here you Mm -hmm. are, you're like, what the hell? Like, those are the people that you just throw off your scene. You're like, no, 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 go, (laughs) go over there. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Like go, go do some paperwork, go stand on the perimeter. Like don't be here because you just messed up 10 minutes of me calming this person down. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and I'd, I'd be lying. I'd be lying if I said I haven't been that person before because I was having my own day and I had a buddy of mine put me off of a call. And I said, I'm sorry, are you putting me off of a call? He says, (laughs) you need to go sit in the car. (laughs) I was like, oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Well, that's the thing too. So, so like, it's like, it, that's a good topic that I think most people don't understand is that as officers, you have a life, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have mm-hmm. other lot, we have other things that's going on in our lives. And unfortunately, we don't recognize that those things bleed over into the job. You know, you wake up mm-hmm. in the morning, next thing you know, you got to fight with your wife, or you got to fight with your husband, your kids are acting up, all of a sudden, you're stressed out. And that's just mm-hmm. something small. And then you carry that into the job and you have a bad day. And that's the Mm -hmm. unfair aspect of being able to judge a profession based off of the fact that, yeah, we are public servants, but we're also human beings. And, you know, just us, like, you know, getting a contempt of cop or something like that, obviously, Mm -hmm. that's the first thing that goes on the news. And all of a sudden, you know, all cops are that way. But yet, Mm -hmm. when it comes to other professions, nobody's labeling a doctor who's having a bad day as all doctors are like that. You know what I mean? It's crazy. No, 100%. I, I had a, it's funny that you say that because I had a doctor be completely rude to me and I was baffled at this. I've never had that before. And I'm like, did I do something? You know what I mean? But I didn't write off the whole profession. And in my mind, and I understand ours is a little different to a certain extent because of the, the powers that we have and stuff like that. But, um, I just wrote it off as he must be really have he must be having a crappy day. Like I, you know, I can't, I can't take that on. And you know, if I needed to complain, I would have, but I didn't feel it rose to that. Um, and then the next time I went back and I had to go back to that office. Um, and I didn't want to, but I had to go back, completely different dude. Like to the point where I found out he was a musician. I love music. I'm the daughter of a musician. He invited me to come see his band and this, and then I, you know, and I was like this is a different person. Like, is, is he, is it something I need to know about like mentally, you know? So, you know, just giving people that chance, but you know, I I often say like, I was a person who wore a uniform. I was not my uniform. You know, if my, if my uniform could have gone to work for me those 17 years and taken the things that I can't, you know, I I can't stop seeing or, you know, um, experiencing or a smell, if my uniform could have done all that for me, 
have at it because the uniform has, doesn't have feeling. The uniform mm -hmm. doesn't have a family, doesn't have friends mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And I also like to remind, especially young officers who have this perception of what the job is going to be like, I remind them, like just talking about that person that riles your call up that forcing people to try to do what you want, like stop taking it so personal. Mm. Like people are pissed off. You're the easiest person to yell at. I'm not saying it's okay for people to yell at you, but they have to get it out because you're there. Let them get it out and let's move on. You know, because don't disrespect me now because then I'm gonna have to stop you there, but let's move on. They're not mad at me, Lindsay. They're mm. mad at the situation either somebody else calls or more than likely a situation they put themselves in. And a lot of times it's just projection. And I, I tell people like, I didn't learn this in my early years. It took me a minute, but I try to lead the call with being Lindsay, just be Lindsay, mm -hmm. right? And now I would tell people when they would get to that personal point or I couldn't calm them down or they were being disrespectful. I said, listen, you wanna talk to Lindsay. This is who you wanna talk to because if, you know, I, my maiden name is McCall, but if Officer McCall or my married name is, is Long or Officer Long shows up, then it's going to be a different vibe. And they're kind of looking at whoever my backup is like, is she talking about the same people? <laughs> like, <laughs> is she crazy? What is, what's going on? Like, here? Yeah, like you, you want to talk to Lindsay <laughs> because if Officer so-and-so shows up, then it's going to be different. Like, let's right. just be two people trying to hash out this problem. Now, sometimes did that result in me taking somebody to jail? It did, but I can still take you to jail and lead with Lindsay and not with my uniform. Because mm. if you, I tell officers, if you lead with your uniform, you lose people, mm. you know, be a human, be a human. Now, sometimes we have to step in and other things have to take place, but that doesn't mean I can't talk to you and say, Hey, listen, you're going to jail today. You got this warrant, or this is what the evidence shows, blah, blah, blah. This is, this is what's going to happen next. I like to try to answer people's questions. I can't stand it when officers shut people down. That's probably one of my, one of, one of my biggest pet peeves. If somebody asks you, Hey, you know, officer, what's going on or what's going to happen? Oh, I'll tell you in a minute, or you don't need to know that. Um, I feel like you could probably calm that person down or they would give you more information if you give them a little something, but if you just treat them like they don't matter, you know, they're not going to give you anything. No, definitely. You know, I've, I've, I've had people apologize to me because they treated me horribly and I was just being polite. But once they came down off of that emotion and I was even polite, I answered questions, even in their height of emotion, I answered questions or I said, you know what? I don't have the answer to that question right now. Give me a minute and I'll try to get that. Or this is my perimeter spot. I can't move from here, but as soon as I can, I'll find out. You come back and you tell them, and they were thankful for it. Not always, but most of the time. And they'd be like, you know what? I'm really sorry for how I came off earlier. I was just really pissed off. And I'm like, yo, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. You know, just be human. That's, that's always my thing is be human. That's exactly right. Be human. Humanize yourself. I love the mm -hmm. fact that you just said what you said as far as leading with you, not the badge or the uniform. And what I also like is the fact that with, with all this, right, like we're talking about a simple thing and how you would want your mom to be treated by another human being, regardless of the uniform that they wear. You would want somebody to treat your mom, your kids, your husband, you know, as a human being and understand that there mm -hmm. are things 
that are just general respect, right? And just general yes. decency. And yes. in a uniform, that doesn't change anything. If anything, mm -hmm. when you talk to people, when you just talk to them and you don't withhold information, because guess what? Law enforcement and local law enforcement, state law enforcement, even federal law enforcement, you're not keeping, you're not having this, you know, top secret clearance where you can't expose certain things. Mm -hmm. Like you're mm -hmm. dealing with somebody's freedom. You're mm -hmm. dealing with a situation mm -hmm. where if they ask a question, you have the answer. There's nothing wrong with telling that individual what's going on exactly. because you're, because you're exactly right, Lindsay, it calms them down. It gives them an avenue of, okay, well, did I do this? And wow, he explained it pretty well. And now I understand. And I mm -hmm. think part of the problems that we're having right in law enforcement, or we've had in law enforcement, and let's say, I don't know, would you say five, six years is that we're bad communicators. We're bad I, communicators I when we are talking with individuals, when we're talking mm -hmm. with citizens. It's this us against them mentality, even in a simple gesture of, you know, little things, whether it's a call mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with locking somebody up, you know, civil complaint or whatever it is, we shoot people away. But yet we need more people like you and officers to understand if you just give 30 seconds, if not 10 seconds of just letting that person know all the information they need to know or want to know mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. not keep it to yourself as if it's some grand secret, it deescalates so much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that information doesn't belong to you. You know, I'm not, I'm not giving the person like my phone number or my address or anything like that. <laughs> Like, you know, and this is, you know, so I, I, I agree with that. And I do believe, I, I do agree with you on that. We, we definitely can be bad communicators. Um, and it's a thing of, you know, I, I used to say like, you know, we're one, one, you know, every, you have to be careful how you treat people. Cause you never know when you're going to run into that person. You know, I've, I was at a party, um, probably 20 minutes away from where I had come into contact within the city of Tempe with somebody. A couple months later, I'm at a party that somebody invited me to at a bar and I ran into this person I'd been on this call with. Um, he was the DJ. And it was weird because we're like looking at each other like, man, I feel like I know you. And I, it was funny <laughs> because I noticed him because he's an attractive guy. And I remember thinking, that's an attractive dude over there, but I feel like I know him. Mm -hmm. Like, and, no, and I kept looking and we kept crossing paths. And then finally, he's like, I feel like I've seen you somewhere. And I was like, I feel like I've seen you somewhere. And then it clicked. I dealt with him on a call. You know, it was it was a civil issue. And we just kind of chit chatted. Now, if I had treated him poorly, that could have been a different story. Right. Mm -hmm. Or I got in a fight. Um, it's probably like back in 2013, I think I got in a fight one time and it was these two homeless guys that were fighting. I stopped to get out to, to deal with it. I get in a fight with one of them and the fight goes to the ground type of fight and to get out of it, end up getting the guy in handcuffs. My, my backup officer gets there and the, the older gentleman comes over to me. I think his first name was William. And he's just like this little scrawny guy. He was homeless. He would get picked on and get his stuff stolen all the time. Mm. I've been out with him a couple of times and he says, uh, ma'am, are you okay? And I said, yeah, he says, I said, I'm okay. I'm just a little mad right now, obviously. And he's like, I, I, I wanted to jump in and help you, ma'am, but I, I didn't want your, your partners to think 
that I was doing anything to you, mm. you know, and I, and I remember him saying that because again, I could have treated him badly when I had been on those calls with him for what, you know, and here he said he, he wanted to help, but then he thought twice. Cause he was like, well, I don't want your backup to think that I'm doing anything to you, but he could have jumped in and helped that guy if I had been crappy to him in the past. So we're at the time, anyway, we were one mistake away from everybody's one mistake away from not having a job. I don't care how high or low you are on the scale, mm -hmm. but now it's almost like we're one perceived mistake away from mm -hmm. that having a job mm -hmm. and people have to be very careful. You're not better than anybody because you don the uniform. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we need all different jobs to work in society, right? Even within your department it used to irritate the mess out of me when I would watch people walk past the um, custodial staff and not mm -hmm. speak. And then I actually had somebody say to me one time, why do you all, why do you have such long conversations? I was like, because they get their checks signed by the same people we do. And they're in here cleaning up after y'all's nasty behinds in here. The least you can do is say hello to somebody. I, bet, I mean, me, I go a little bit further because I knew about families. I was invited to baby showers. I knew about medical issues and all this other stuff. I said, but there are people. And I said, you don't know somebody's story. Just because even out on the street, even dealing with some of the homeless population. I've had some of the most interesting conversations with people mm. and people aren't always what you see. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had, I've had conversations with people that gave me chills and that brought me to tears just because I listened to them. And I'm like, wow, like, I'm glad I stopped. Like you made my day better by having this conversation. So you just, you just never know when you're going to run into people and how they can enrich your life. Just because somebody's homeless doesn't mean they can't make your life better. Exactly. I, yeah. lo I, I love it. I mean, you got me, you got me thinking back on a lot of different things. And what I love about it is it's just, uh, it's just the golden rule, right? You, you treat everybody as you would want to be treated, even in that situation. Mm -hmm. And I had a trainer and we'll give him a shout out, Herbert Green. You're the nicest man on the planet. And he is. And when I was with this man, he knew everybody's name from the person who was taking the trash out to mm -hmm. uh, the custodial staff that was hired because they had special needs. He treated them all the same and he knew everybody mm -hmm. and they all knew him. And the, every time he walked past them, they would smile. They made it a point to go say hi to him. And yes. he always made it a point to know their name. And when he didn't mm -hmm. know their name, it bothered him because for him and for a lot of people like yourself, and, and uh, Mr. Green, knowing somebody's name is personalizing that individual. Yes. Instead of just yes. walking past, it, it takes that extra effort to not only know the name, but then remember it on the future time that you see the person. Mm -hmm. And that is such a gift, right? Like that is something that is such a small thing to be overlooked because even on the street, when you are doing police work, when you remember people's names, and you can call them by that name, man, Listen. what an impact it makes on that situation. That's powerful because there, so there's two people since you've given shout outs that I want to give a shout out to. There's, a, out. there's a detective, there's a detective Gomez that I worked with at Tempe. And I tell him this a lot. I talk to people around work because of the way he does, right? Even when he was in a special assignment patrol, wherever, if he saw you, he would stop. He would look directly at you. He would use your name. He would say, hey, Merritt, how's your day going? 
And it's just, it stops you in your tracks because you're so used to people just speaking to you over their shoulder. Mm -hmm. And he would use your name. So that kind of is like, oh, shoot, like, well, let me talk because that that meant something like he said my name. And I'm not saying that like, oh, I'm excited to talk to this person, but you're not used to that, especially in a police station or a precinct. We're constantly passing each other and just saying, hey, over your shoulder and going on about your business. But I always really, really enjoyed that. And then Another person I want to give a shout out to is um, a good friend of mine, um, Sergeant Hampton. <clears throat> she was a school resource officer for a long time, and she lives in the city where she works. Mm. And I couldn't go to lunch with her without somebody coming up and speaking to her, either a former student or a parent of a former student. They would say thank you. They would say, you know, um, you know, my child is doing this. Or you remember when they used to get in trouble for A, B, and C? Well, let me tell you, now they have their own kids. They're going through it, but thank you for the time you put into them. And not only to have people, you, you know, you remember and use their name, but to have somebody remember you mm. and what you poured into them. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, that's huge. And we don't do that enough for each other, not even just in policing, but just as human beings, period. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a great thing. So I, I implement that into how I speak to people. I will use your name. I will ask you how you're doing. I will wait for a response. Um, I try to, if I go out in public, I try to compliment at least one person when I'm out in public, mm -hmm. because I've learned you don't know what somebody's going through and you don't know how your kind word or just you saying, you know what, ma'am, that dress looks really nice on you. Or I really, you know, sir, those glasses are like, they go so well with your face and people smile and they're like, oh, oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. And you don't know what that person's going through, yeah. you know, and I'm not saying it to be cheesy or I'm not saying it to get something out of it. I just know what those little compliments from somebody has done for me. Mm -hmm. um, I was in a mood yesterday. And I stopped to get something to eat by myself. And uh, this, this woman at the restaurant, she was like, can I just say, she says, I don't know, it's just something about, she says, you look like a movie star. And I was like, <laughs> why? Because I feel horrible. Like I'm in like yoga pants and a t-shirt. I just washed my hair. So it was looking a hot mess and a ponytail. And she was like, I don't know. It's just, it's just something about you. And, you know, just your face and your energy. Like I really enjoy talking to you. And I just, I told her, thank you. Like that actually helped my energy that day to hear that. So you just never know what somebody is going through and how you can kind of turn their day around. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very missed. You're right in society in general. And I just related to cop work because we can do that as well. It's not always that, you know, it's not always the need for the citizen or somebody who's not a cop to come up to us and say, Oh, we appreciate what you do. Like, yeah, that's great. You know, but how about mm -hmm. us doing that to the people, right? Uh, yeah, the yes. 7-Eleven yes. clerk and just telling mm -hmm. them how great of a job they're doing or saying thank you to the custodian staff and being like, thank you so much. Because, mm -hmm. you know, without you, this station wouldn't be as clean and as great as it looks. You know, these are these are things that are very simple. And mm -hmm. I love that you're bringing this up. And it, it, it is such a need um, in law enforcement in general, from my experience, just from my experience, because there is this kind of standoffish there is this kind of wall this veneer mm -hmm. that we have to for whatever reason we have to put up and there's no need for that right there is 100%. no need sir robert I peel i finally got this right sir robert peel said the people are the police and the police are the people mm -hmm. there's no there's no veneer with that because you're mm -hmm. in it yeah. um i wanted to get to this um touchy subject and you know i know you've 
So just for listeners, you've been on the circuit in really for, I don't know, probably the past few years that you've been trying to help uh, officers with mental health and uh, mm-hmm. you've gone through conferences, you you really put yourself out there and helping and putting thought processes into how to make mental health better. But before we even get into that, I wanted to ask you to talk about your personal experience with your own officer involved shooting and just go into that and, mm-hmm. you know, tell us what happened, you know, from beginning to end and um, just your mindset and just how everything, how everything was the result. No problem. Um, so in, well, we're in 2022 now, but so October, um, 2018, uh, my zone partner and I were involved in a shooting while attempting to serve order of protection. So at the time I worked, um, during the day I worked eight to six and, um, I worked like a Saturday through Tuesday shift. And this was a Monday and it was about, I want to say about about two 30 in the afternoon. My partner hits me up and she's like, Hey, um, I just took a domestic violence report at headquarters. And I see that there is a order of protection out already for the suspect that another officer has tried to serve. Um, didn't get an answer, but we know he's home because he's been texting the victim. Um, and she's like, since you're near the station, do you mind going to go uh, pick it up from the other officer? Cause that officer was getting off at three o'clock. And like I said, it was about two 30. So in my mind, I was like, I really don't want to go help with this because I'm about to eat. <laughs> I was like right in front of the restaurant. I was about to get some food from, but you know, my zone partner called. So I say, yes. I was like, all right, so I'll go. The station was around the corner. I go get the paperwork from him. Um, we look it over. I meet with my partner and the victim. We look it over um, and nothing stood out. Not, not, nothing stood out. And, you know, I, I like to give a shout out to my, my partner because she is very thorough um, and probably one of the best like patrol cops you could work with for sure. Mm-hmm. And so nothing stood out to her. No, nothing was alarming. I do always say though, um, and I've probably said this a million times. So if anybody else hears me on another podcast, I will probably say the same thing. If states shared information a little better, this could have been a different approach. But, you know, I'll get over it one day. Right. <laughs> um, so um, he wasn't answering the door for the previous officer, but she has standing. So she was going to unlock the door for us. We were going to make contact with him, serve him with the paperwork and arrest him for the domestic violence. We've done that before. Mm-hmm. You know, it's nothing out of the ordinary, mm-hmm. right? Um, we go to the house. My partner had asked about weapons, but I always tell people I live in Arizona. So, you know, I assume a toddler has a gun in Arizona. <laughs> uh, like Virginia. So just because somebody, yeah, well, just because somebody says no, that doesn't mean they don't. Um, so the house is, it's a small house. So if you're facing the house, there's a carport to your left with a single car in it. That was Mm -hmm. his car. And she says, he's home. That's his car. And then the front door and the windows and stuff are to the right. So she unlocks the exterior door. We were in a carport. So she unlocks the exterior carport door. It leads into like a tiny laundry room. And then there was a door that led from the laundry room into the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So she opens the door She calls his name um, and she doesn't go all the way into the house. 
and um, my partner walks past her. I walk past my partner. And you ever have those moments when like something feels weird or you think something is odd, but it's just happening too fast. Mm -hmm. One for you to process and two for you to communicate it to somebody else. So mm -hmm. that is what was happening because when she didn't go in the house, I was like, mm, that's weird because if a woman is putting a man out, normally she's like, get your shit and go. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, like, right. get your little bags, go to call call Tyrone or whoever you're going to call and get out my house. Right? <laughs> right, right. But that didn't happen. And I thought that was weird. And I was like, well, why isn't she like into this, him being put out? Um, now, again, this was for domestic violence. So I didn't, at the time, I didn't know the extent of the domestic violence. Gotcha. So obviously she was pretty afraid of him that she didn't want to go all the way in the house. And then right as I finished that thought, I see my partner with her uh, left hand taking her flashlight out. So by this time, it's it's like maybe 10 minutes or so, seven minutes before three o'clock. So in Arizona, um, it is like I don't really feel like Arizona believes in clouds. I grew up in Georgia where we have clouds and we have overcast days and it just doesn't happen here. OK, mm -hmm. I think somebody told me they have like 360 days of sunny sunny days here <laughs> and so and it's really bright in the afternoons here so i'm like why is she taking out her flashlight because it's almost three but when i stepped in the house the house was dark mm. now not unusual for arizona homes we use blackout curtains here mm -hmm. um but i remember it just being eerily dark and so again that thought finishes i it's broken by my partner speaking to somebody i step in the door a little bit and she could see down a hall that I couldn't see down. And um, so it, now we're standing in the kitchen at this point, And it was like a U-shaped kitchen. So if the door is behind me to the laundry room, um, you know, the kitchen kind of did like a U. My partner is standing to my left. And she's in the like in the bottom of the U, we'll say. Okay. Yep. And um, there's a gentleman, you know, I say gentleman, some people laugh at me when I say gentleman, but there's a, a guy walking up the hall, um, never said anything to us, didn't really have any facial expressions or anything like that, um, had his hands in his pockets as he came towards us and my partner said why we were there and that we needed to talk to him. She told him to take his hands out of his pockets and I'd say he was probably between like 12 15 feet away from us, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, he came out of his right pocket with a, a revolver and just started firing. Mm. Um, so because he's, you know, he's taller than me. So once he extends his arm, that gap is actually closer than that 12 to 15 mm -hmm. feet. So when I first heard the shot go off, um, my partner, she got hit in her upper left arm. I thought she got shot in the face. Mm -hmm. She's a little shorter than me. And it just, when he, he just kind of came across and my training kicked in, you know, people were like, well, what did you do? I said, well, you know, I went to draw and I stepped to the right. I went to draw and move, mm -hmm. you know, like you're not move trained to line. just stand there yep. And, yep. And, and take it. But as I was doing that, the girlfriend ran out of the door and I got shot in my right forearm, right. Mm -hmm. As I was trying to draw. Mm -hmm. So now he's coming towards me. And, you know, the thing I thought to do was to run. So people were like, what'd you do next? I said, I ran. We're not trained to just stand there. Right. So I ran out the door because I'm no good to myself, my partner, the victim or anybody if I just stand there. And when I ran out the door, um, I, got, I got hit in my upper left arm as well. Um, he shot back at the house at one point. 
it missed my partner. It went into the door jam of the exterior um, uh, carport door. My partner was able to return fire. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I shout out to her because with, you know, an exterior door in the kitchen, laundry room and an exterior door out to the uh, laundry room, she mm -hmm. was able to make that shot. She shot mm -hmm. one time. She only pulled the trigger one time and she was able to hit him. Um, and, but he hit, I got shot a third time. Mm. I got shot in my, the lower part of my vest on the left side. Mm. And because it was at the most bottom part of the Kevlar that you could be in, when I say the most bottom part, if you've ever opened up a vest, mm -hmm. taking the blue panel, taking it out of the case, mm -hmm. take it out of the blue panel that it's in. And the Kevlar is kind of yellow and they have like some tape on the bottom. Yep. I got hit in the tape. Mm. That's where I got hit. Wow. Right. Um, so, uh, like I said, he got hit when I got hit in the back, it caused me to fall down because I got hit over my kidney. So my legs buckled mm. and I fell to the left, to the right. He ran to the left. Um, he ran down a couple houses, jumped over in somebody's backyard and used the last bullet to take his own life. Oh, wow. Um, and all of this happened. So when I watched the body cam footage from the time we're walking up and, you know, there's like that 30 second delay before it, the audio kicks in. I remember hearing it beep. And when I hit the ground, that was two minutes because they, the, the, the reminders on our cameras were two in two minute increments. Mm -hmm. So from the time we basically were walking up to the house to the time I got hit in the back and I fell was two minutes. Wow. And I believe the shooting happened in under five seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I thought I was on the ground longer than I was. Um, but my partner said that um, she was still in the house, by the way, because we all ran past her. Like I said, she was in the bottom of the U in this kitchen. Mm -hmm. So she was in the house. She wasn't sure where he was. I'm dazed outside, not knowing which way is up. And you ever get in a fight and your mic falls off and now you're mm -hmm. trying to grab your mic and it's swinging everywhere. You know, so I'm, I'm trying to get my mic, but that's... Um, after I got up, when I was on the ground, she says I went down and I popped right back up. Mm -hmm. But to me, I thought I was down for at least 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I say that because I had three distinct thoughts that went through my head when I got hit. The first one was, oh, shit, I'm paralyzed because I couldn't feel my legs. Mm -hmm. And then I wondered if I peed on myself, too, because I had to mm -hmm. go to the bathroom before mm -hmm. that call. And I'm like, I hope I didn't mess on myself. <laughs> um, and then. My next thought was, well, where is he? Because I don't want to look up and get shot in the face. Mm. Um, and then, you know, you talk about training, right? So mm. I, this is in 2018. I had left Georgia in 2008. My academy, I started academy in 2003. All the stuff they yelled and drilled into your head in academy came back. Like I can hear like my instructors plain as day. Mm -hmm. Like you stay in the fight. You will go home today you know, you get up, you know, if somebody knocks you down, you get up. And all of that came back and like racing in my head. I mean, mm. it was almost like they were in my ears. Right. And then my family flashed in my head. I'm married. Mm. I had a 22 month old at home and a four year old <sighs> and they flashed in my head. Right. And so I was very motivational that day. And I said, bitch, get up. Cause this is not where we die. Mm -hmm. um, if you're going to kill me, you will kill me down the street. Like mm. if, if that's going to be the case. So I get up, 
I take off running. Like I said, now fast forward to the mic part. My mic is swinging. I'm trying to grab it. I go to grab it, but my hand is cramped. My right hand is cramped because when the bullet went in my, my right forearm, it broke my radius bone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a through and through. Um, and I'm looking at my arm and I'm like, well, that's broken <laughs> because it was, I've never broken mm-hmm. a bone, but I knew that was broken. And I'm looking at my hand, there's blood on my hand. I'm, you know, getting my mic. I could not hear very well. I just remember things being muffled. Mm-hmm. And then I'm trying to get with my partner because I know, you know, she was wondering where I was. I wanted to know where she was, but it took me a minute to like get my bearings. I get behind a tree and I'm thinking like, oh shit, like she's pretty kick-ass. I bet you she went after him. So I mm-hmm. need to be with her. Like she doesn't need to, be, I can't leave her by herself. And training again kicks in, you know, what, what happens? What do we train? You know, when we do firearms, if you get injured, you know, mm-hmm. we learn how to shoot with our support hand and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I did, you know, we do at the range and I put my right arm across my chest. I reached across to grab my gun with my, my support hand, no gun. Mm. You want to talk about a pucker factor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So then I did this little dance because I was like, okay, well, do I go back in the house? Cause that's where I thought I dropped it. Do I go back in the house or do I stay out here? Do I go back in the house? So I kind of did this little dance back and forth and I had such tunnel vision and I, and I still didn't realize my partner was in the house still. Um, if I had just looked down a little bit from where I fell, my gun had fallen, had landed in the dirt where I fell. Mm. Um, and what broke me out of that OODA loop, if you will, mm-hmm. is I can hear sirens coming. So I, I would say within like 90, 60 to 90 seconds of my partner putting it on the radio, I could hear sirens. Um, so the first officer gets there. Um, I ran across the street. I ended up going across the street to flag him down, I guess. And, um, I, I definitely wasn't shocked because when I'm watching the body cam footage, like even now when I watch it, like to me, that doesn't look like me and it doesn't sound like me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I remember telling the first officer, like he shot me, like he took out a gun and he shot me. That's all I kept saying. And I was, I made a comment about how mad my mom was going to be. I was like, my mom's going to freak out. She's gonna make me quit my job. When this dance back and forth, deciding if I'm going to go back in the house to get my gun or not. And then I realized I had dropped it right there in the dirt like everything was kind of like tunneling in like they say with the tunnel vision and I was so focused on the house if I just brought my eyes down a few inches I would have seen it in the dirt where I fell Mm. and um, probably within anywhere between like 60 to 90 seconds I could hear the sirens and that's what broke me out of that OODA loop of do I go back in the house or not Um, and when the first officer got there, I was very lucky because he was actually just at the corner at the 7-Eleven. He was just wow. sitting in the parking lot, hmm. writing a report. And so he was the first one to get there. And I remember telling him, like, you know, the guy took out a gun and shot me. And I remember saying that, like looking him in the eye and it didn't feel real unless me and him made legit eye contact. Hmm. And when I hear myself and see myself on my body cam footage, it doesn't look or sound like me. Um, Even now, like three and a half years later, it's just weird to see yourself like that and Mm -hmm. hear yourself like that. Mm -hmm. I remember like just saying like, my mom's going to freak out. She's going to make me quit my job. Cause I just got off the phone with her um, before I rolled up to that call. And um, so 
it was weird when the second officer got there, they threw tourniquets on me, which I'm embarrassed. I didn't even think about my tourniquet in my pocket. And my partner, you know, she was in the house still waiting to find out where this guy was, making sure he wasn't, you know, the suspect wasn't outside the door. Um, and she had put on her own tourniquet, like she's training her gun at the door and putting on her own tourniquet. And I'm, I'm running around like a chicken with his head cut off. I feel like outside, mm-hmm. like trying mm-hmm. to figure out life. Cause all I wanted was a teriyaki bowl 30 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And now, you know, I've been, I've been hit three times and I just wanted a teriyaki bowl. So I'm just like, oh my goodness. So when I get, they put me in the back of a patrol car and take me away um, to the staging area. And when I listen to that officer's like body cam, like I'm cursing and I'm apologizing. I'm cursing and I'm apologizing. Cause like, it seemed like the further away we got from um, the house, the more the, ca- the pain was kicking in. Like my adrenaline was subsiding. Mm-hmm. And um, now I'm apologizing cause I'm bleeding in his patrol car. And he's like, we're good. <laughs> like, what are you apologizing for? Exactly. You know, so he, you know, he's a, a former military guy. He carried two tourniquets. So he threw tourniquets on me. Um, the street that we were on, like it's a heavily patrolled street. Um, and it's one of our major intersections. And actually the local hospital for Tempe is off of that main road. Mm. And so, you know, fire was there quickly. It felt like forever, but they were there pretty, pretty quickly. Other officers were there. I mean, it was a double squad day. Like I couldn't have asked for a better response, me and my partner, because, and we were in an area where cops frequent because one of our uh, substations was down the street Mm -hmm. from where the house was. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you got canine training out there, people doing reports, going, having lunch, going to the bathroom at this station. And you have this heavily patrolled area. And so we had, I mean, I think we had a really good response. but man, that pain was kicking in. And I, at one point I remember feeling hot and feeling like I was about to pass out because my arm is one of those things, you know, like in the cartoon, like something was dropped on Bugs Bunny's foot, but he doesn't know it hurts until he looks at it. Like every time I looked at my arm, like it hurt worse. And I'm sitting here trying to use like hypnobirthing breathing, which is a form of like meditation and breathing that I use when I was in labor with my daughter to manage my pain. And it would work in short stints, like when you're talking about muscle memory, right? Mm, mm. Just like with my daughter, as soon as my water broke, I started doing my relaxations, listening to my affirmations and doing my breathing. That kicked in for me, even in that instance, which is Mm. weird, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. So um, right as I felt like I was about to pass out, the ambulance gets there, but I tell them I don't want to go anywhere until I see my partner. Like, we don't have to wait a minute. And so luckily um, a supervisor's car came screaming into the parking lot. She jumps out, we give eye contact. And I'm like, okay, cool, you can take me. Um, you know, now we're in the ambulance. <laughs> so the ambulance was funny. He's, you know, they're snatching stuff off of you. Um, and I'm like, hey, I can take my pants off myself. You don't have to cut anything off, you know? Uh, and I mean, they cut my socks off. And I'm like, why do y'all have to cut everything? Like, I, those are like good socks. Like I, I could have taken those off for you and the same snip snip, I could have just pulled them off, you know? So they're checking and I'm asking for pain meds, but they got to check vitals. And then my phone fell out of my pocket and I snatched it from them because I was like, I got to call my husband. 
And they're like, well, well, let's wait till we get to the hospital. I was like, no, because this is going to be on the news. Um, my husband was asleep at the time because he worked nights, but I can't take the chance because you know how people love social media mm-hmm. on it popping up somewhere. And then my family is getting a call before I've gotten a chance to talk to them because that right. happens way too much nowadays. Like, yeah. w- like nobody should find out somebody has been injured or died through social media. That yeah. should not happen. Yeah. Um, especially close family. So I called my husband. He didn't answer. I called him again and I have to wake him up because he doesn't wake up right away. And I was like, I got something I need to tell you. So I need you to sit up. <laughs> so I said, I'm okay, but I just got shot three times. I need you to get to hospital. <laughs> so there was silence, obviously, because I know in his brain, he's like, what the fuck did I just hear? Mm-hmm. What did I get? I can't imagine even till this day, like we've talked about it, but I can't imagine being woken up like that you know? And I said, did you hear what I said? He said, yes. I said, okay. I just wanted to make sure. And, um, so I got off the phone. I did call my brother, me, my my brother who lives here in Arizona. We're very close. And I called him. Uh, now he's a realtor and his first response to me was who shot you? And I said, (laughs) does it matter? He wants to get get back. That's what that was. Right. I said, well, I joke because my brother's not a golfing realtor. He likes, he loves guns. He likes to shoot. So he gets out of state clients who don't have the same gun laws that we have. And they're like, uh, you think after, after we see these couple of properties, we can go to the range. (laughs) So he's capable. Um, But I didn't need that at that point. So I just needed him to be able to call our mother and to call our other brother who lives out of state. So, you know, we get to the hospital and there's just a lot going on at the hospital. There's a lot of people there and now you're in triage or the trauma bay or whatever, and they're pulling stuff off of you and moving beds and stuff. And my chief was there when I got there. So she stayed with me until I had to go get a CT scan. Um, and then I, now I'm waiting for family and stuff to show up. And by the time they got there, Lindsay was feeling right because she had her pain meds. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of you know, I love husband, you and you're the greatest. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> like touching people's face. Like, oh, we're friends, right? I love you so much. So <laughs> my husband said that when he got there, um, he came around the corner. And I remember him looking so scared when he came around the corner. And as soon as I saw, as quickly as I noticed him looking scared, that look went away. Mm. And so later when we had some time, I asked him, I was like, what, what was your face about? Cause you came around the corner, like what in the world? And then it just changed. And he says, when I first came in the hospital, there's cops standing everywhere. Like it was like a movie. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what to expect. Cause normally when you see that in the movie, like it's real, real bad. Mm-hmm. And, but they were waiting on him. So somebody parked the car, they swooped him in, they bought him in. And um, he says, well, I came around the corner. I saw you joking and laughing with people and, being bossy, I knew you were okay. And mm. he's like, I, you know, cause he's not in law enforcement. And so, uh, he has a caveman brain. And I say that in like a, I say that in like a primal, like by, bi- bi- biological way, not like in like a, you know, he's not like a, um, a chauvinist or anything like that, but cavemen think very specifically. They, they stay in the mm. present. They're mm. looking out for danger and things like that. And that's very much him. So for him, if I was okay, then he was okay. 
Mm. Um, obviously he was upset and, you know, he wanted to hurt the person who hurt me because that's part of protecting, um, in, in that type of personality. But if he knew I was okay and our kids still had a mother, he was okay. Mm. And, you know, I was in the hospital for three days. Um, had a lot of visitors, a lot of phone calls, uh, a lot of people that I really appreciate and I love, and I was surprised to see. Um, even a buddy that I worked with in Georgia just happened to be training. Uh, he no, he had moved moved to Arizona because of his wife's family at the time, and he just happened to be training in the Phoenix area. And I thought the drugs were so good, I was hallucinating wow. when I saw him at my <laughs> at my doorway, mm-hmm. and I was like why is blue here? Like what is going on? And so I had, you know, it was just a lot of love and I got released from the hospital and then you got to go home. And my kids had already seen me in the hospital, but that wasn't, that was something I wasn't really prepared for. Mm -hmm. Um, And I hadn't really thought about that much. And once the kids got there, I looked at my husband and I said, what did we, and I'm using air quotes, tell them happen like why did we tell them we were in the hospital he's like i just told him you broke your arm you got in a mm. fight with a bad guy and you broke your arm okay cool so i had this wound vac in my arm the first day um because i had two surgeries when i was there and so my husband my, my son is looking at this machine and he sees the blood in the tube and he's like are you gonna die and i mm. said no this is this is the four-year-old and i said no and I said, why? And he was like, well, they're taking your blood. And I, so I'm trying to explain to him in four-year-old terms what a wound vac is, right? Mm-hmm. So out the, like under his breath, he shakes his head and he's like, this is a vampire hospital. They're stealing <laughs> blood. <laughs> Isn't it great to be four? Oh, man. Yeah. And the, but they're very matter of fact, right? right so right. that carried over when we got, when I got home because he wanted to be my doctor. He wanted to clean up my wound. I had a through and through on my upper left arm. So they just put bandages on it. So I said, that's fine. And I didn't think about it. That's the thing. I didn't think about it. And he says, he looks at my arm and he's like, he puts a little stuff on it. He cleans it up. He's just about to put the new bandages on it. He says, are you sure the bad guy didn't just shoot you? Wow. And like my stomach dropped. And I was like, I did not expect that. I looked at my husband. And my daughter's just walking around. She's 22 months. So mm-hmm. she was upset that she wasn't being breastfed. That was her only issue. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's all she was looking for. Right. And I said, I fell on a stick and my husband's like a stick. And I'm like, I didn't know what else to say, you know, and fast forward, we ended up having that conversation with him. We were honest with him about what happened. Mm-hmm. His response to me was, duh, I told you, you got shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was mm-hmm. like, we're going to fight. Who are you talking to? <laughs> like, so he, he was like, why did you lie to me? And I said, well, I didn't lie. Like I omitted some things. And he's like, why did you, what is omit? I said, listen, dude, I'm 39. <laughs> he turned You're four. In, he turned like, into I'm, the defense attorney. He did. And I'm like, I'm not about to have this conversation with you. <laughs> and he didn't have any more questions that day, but you know, kids that young, how they understand the world changes very quickly. So I did get more detailed questions. Mm -hmm. I did get more feeling and things like that, that I didn't expect. And then it it rose to the point of him having um, anxiety when I returned back to work on light Mm -hmm. duty eight months later. And that wasn't something I was prepared for. You know, I didn't know what anxiety looked like on a four-year-old. 
And my, my mom mentioned it to me and one of his teachers, like he cried to my mom about not wanting me to return back to work because he didn't want me to get shot again. Mm. Um, his teachers noticed he's a very affectionate kid. Like mm -hmm. he's definitely, he's mature for his age. I know people say that about their kids, but like he's, he's intuitive mm -hmm. and he knows when you're off emotionally, like he'll mm -hmm. come and give you a hug or mm -hmm. could say, I can tell you're not feeling good. What can I do for you? Kind of thing. But he wasn't doing that. He wasn't hugging. He wasn't helping out in class. He was falling asleep at weird times in class. Mm. Um, he was sneaking my uniform shirts to school. Uh, he threw up. He wasn't eating, you know, he wasn't eating right. He told his teacher one day when she had a conversation with him about what was going on with him. And he's like, um, you know, my stomach hurts when I think about my mom. Mm. And, you know, that's that's a tough one to swallow when you're talking about your kid and especially being um, I'm not saying dads can't feel it the same way, but I carried him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I literally was connected to this person mm -hmm. for uh, uh, four days past his due date. I'm going to tell you oh, that wow. right now. I know it's not <laughs> long, but he hung out and he was a big boy. Yeah. Um, but I was connected to him for, you know, 40 weeks and four days. Like, and for him to feel that way about me, I wasn't angry about the shooting until then. Before yeah. I just felt like that was unfortunate that that man felt like that was his only way out of that situation. Mm. And now you've, now you've harmed somebody who is very close to me and I will literally take a life for, <laughs> and you're not here to take responsibility for your actions. Mm. You know, and that's when I got upset. And so we've had our ups and downs over the years. Um, I think what has helped me throughout all of this is that I had fantastic support, not only from my family and friends, but from my department. Mm -hmm. um, my family didn't want for anything. We had meal trains. I had people just come and sit with my kids, you know, or just come entertain them or take my trash out, you know, and I had friends that flew across the country away from their own jobs and families to help take care of mine for a couple of days. Mm. Um, and that's a very humbling experience, especially for somebody who's used to being the one that's helping other people. Mm. Um, I joke and I say, you know, my arm was in a cast, my right arm and I'm right-handed. And I said, you know, things get real when you can't wipe your own butt. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you know, my husband, uh... my husband offered, but we don't need to know each other like that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you just get in the shower. You just get in the shower, you know? Uh, and my grandmother always said a shower will make you feel like a brand new person. So I was feeling like a brand new person, you know, at least twice a day sometimes is all I'm saying. Um, you know, you know, I have to, I have to <laughs> stop you a little bit because the way that you speak about this, whew, man, I gotta, I gotta, so I get emotional listening to it because obviously when you have kids, it's a whole different, it's a whole different show, right? Yeah. It is. Um, you it know, really it didn't is. affect you. It didn't affect you the way you thought it was going to affect you until mm -hmm. your perceptive, intuitive, awesome four-year-old says one thing. And I've been there, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. not in the shooting, but I've been there where my, my young daughter can look right through you and know what's going on. And it, and oh, it's, they know. Yeah. And they know, um, and man, him taking your, your uniform shirt to school, all those things that he was doing was all about him knowing that you have been in this dangerous situation and mm -hmm. he doesn't know how to comprehend the fact that 
you know, is he grateful that mommy's here? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he knows that there's a possibility and, you know, it could have been a likelihood where you couldn't have been, you know, and yeah. um, they mm-hmm. know that they know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I can't uh, I can't imagine you as a mother at that point in time getting not only pissed off, but also feeling that certain way with the individual where, you know, mm-hmm. because, yeah, when it's you, it's just you. But when it's your family, when it's your son, when it's your 22 month old, when it's your when it's your husband, you mm-hmm. know, these are people that you know, depend on you. Yeah. And that's what yeah. people don't realize. Like, like we're getting into situations in life and, you know, we're getting situations where you're an officer and your life can be taken, not just your own, but people's lives. That is the ripple effect, the giant ripple effect. Oh yes. You huge, know? huge ripple effect. Huge, huge. For I you? mean, yeah, just huge. people. And that, that's the part people don't realize is that part right there is that ripple effect. Yeah. It's not just you. It, it, it goes. And sometimes you don't even know how far it goes. Yeah. For you, one of the things that um, I've been to a couple of academies, I just finished one with the federal government and they put on this uh, class and this one Baltimore city police officer or former, I think, sergeant, he got into a shooting and he, he went through this class and he talks about this acronym win the win principle you know what's mm-hmm. important now mm-hmm. and you talked about mm-hmm. all of it at that time mm-hmm. when you were you know you sat there and you went through the whole mental aspect of the fight or flight syndrome right you talked about mm-hmm. the, you talked about how your husband has a caveman mentality but that mm-hmm. that in itself is the caveman limbic system which is the fight or yes. flight and yes, you yes. went into that and mm-hmm. the fact is i mean i can't stress enough how amazing the training is not only from a physical standpoint but from a mental standpoint because do you Mm -hmm. feel that if you didn't get that beat into your head as far as surviving and even talking survival to yourself Mm -hmm. you know you you said in a in a very joking manner like bitch get up but at the same time that was your own self-talk on how you talk to yourself to motivate like we're mm-hmm. getting through this, you know, we're going to live today. Can you explain, you know, outside of training, did you feel like if you didn't have that training, do you feel like you would have reacted or thought the same way? Um, I feel like because of the family that I come from, I, I would have, I would have had that, but I, you know, but like you said, just the training alone, like, you know, I remember instructors talking about mental rehearsal, you know, and how huge that is. And I think, I think as an industry though, we do, well, I can't speak for all departments, but the departments I have been to, I've had some phenomenal training. Mm -hmm. We complain Mm -hmm. about training, but I'm glad I had it because that's what helped me and my partner that day is training. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Because like I said, as I went through my story, like I pointed like things that we're trained to do and it just like you do this, go here. And that's kind of how it happened. So um, I think, the the get up and go would have been there but the tactics definitely helped from having that really good training mm-hmm. and even going back to the hypnobirthing when i was in pain boom i just clicked and i did that because that's something that i practiced as something i trained the other part of it is i feel like i came out better i think than some do in critical incidents because of where my mind was before my critical incident happened Um, 
I was in a good place mentally and emotionally mm. before because the year prior I had my daughter, I was diagnosed with postpartum depression mm. towards the end of 2017. So that's a whole nother layer. You know, I wasn't, I, I didn't, I didn't get diagnosed until 11 months after I had my daughter and, you know, my mom noticed my, my husband noticed and, you know, he had that conversation with me. I did not get upset with him. I know that's not the way it goes. A lot of times I speak to my guy friends who are afraid to touch that subject with their wife or significant other. And I understand why, but I was relieved. Like, thank you. Like, I'm glad it's not just me that's seeing and feeling this. Mm -hmm. It is something going on. So um, my doctor was great. You know, they included um, my husband in my treatment plan. And um, I eventually had to get put on medication, which I fought, but I encourage people don't fight it. Like that was probably the best thing for me at that time. And you don't have to stay on medication forever. Mm -hmm. um, it like, I was like, wow. Like within a couple of weeks, I was like, hello, old Lindsay, I have missed you. And, but that, that put me in a position to be like, listen, I'm going out here. I'm telling people what to do resources utilize and I'm not even doing most of those things so I didn't like that feeling on calls where I'm telling somebody to reach out and I'm telling somebody to use these resources and I'm not doing any of those things for myself mm -hmm. so I started telling people how I felt and if I was in a bad way that day or I didn't feel myself um, I was eating better sleeping better I was doing all the self-care things I was even seeing a therapist mm -hmm. and I wasn't seeing a therapist about work stuff I was just seeing it about just managing life as a working mom of two young kids and being in, you know, being in law enforcement, but I wasn't talking to her about trauma in law enforcement at that time. Um, and so I think that helped me because like I do, a, me and my husband do a presentation about like my critical incident and our family. And, you know, when we talk about the postpartum, that's kind of like our critical incident before my critical incident, because mm. it kind of set the tone for how things were handled emotionally afterwards to the point where I got shot on a Monday, got released from the hospital on the Wednesday. I was sitting in my therapist's office that Thursday. Mm. So there was no lag in the critical incident and trying to fumble my way into finding mental health help. And I try to encourage people, please seek mental health help, a therapist. And it just could be every once in a while. Do that before things get really bad. Because when things are bad is not the time to figure out if you like therapy or if you trust this person because you have so many other things going on right right then. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a big mistake that we make. But I, I like to mention that because I think that's what really, really helped me in the end. And it's not like I don't have my days. I do have my days mm -hmm. um, still. Um, I deal with anxiety and depression mm -hmm. um, from time to time. But I think having those tools ready to go and supportive people around me helps me get through those times a lot quicker than usual. Mm. That's, um, yeah, I, I'm just sitting here. I'm so involved in the emotional aspect of this because I've seen it too many times where officers suppress so much. And mm -hmm. I've, I've been there. I've been that officer that has suppressed so much from trauma um, from my own life and then not really knowing how to deal with it. And you touched on it when we first started this episode is that when you don't talk about it and you don't know where this, where, or how to even deal with those things, they seep out in a lot of negative different ways. 
um, yep. and that pain seeps out. And I love the fact that yep. you're such a champion for mental health, especially with how short it was after your, uh, your shooting. And then you're talking about your postpartum, the vulnerability that you're showing helps, right? Like, yeah. it's not it's the antithesis of what we're told to do as quote, unquote, brothers and sisters in blue, which is compartmentalize, right. suck it up, keep mm -hmm. moving. Don't worry mm -hmm. about it, it'll go away, all these different things. And the the whole aspect of that has to change. And for you, you know, it is such a monumental, you have such a monumental voice, because you've been through it, right? And you know what it takes. And at the same time, those are tools that you still utilize because of the things that you've gone through. And those things are tools that you can take, just like a tool belt that you we use in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's something that we can't we we can't put a stigma on that. We can't be afraid right. to talk about our issues, to talk about these things because for you, when you talk about it, even now, you know, I've been told from a psychological standpoint, when you talk about the pain and trauma that you've gone through, it holds less power the next time that you may have anxiety or depression. And so therefore, mm -hmm. you don't, you don't, you don't wallow in that cycle as deep. And so- yes. Yes. Is that true for you? Do you feel that every time you talk about it? Do you feel like a little less of that pain goes away? Um, it, I, you know, I it's funny you say that because I've told people before, like when I do like presentations or interviews or something like that, I said it's almost a little selfish on my part because I, I feel like I get so much out of it. You know, obviously I hope the audience does too, but it's therapeutic for me. Um, because like you said, I, I get to process it differently each time. And if somebody asks me a question, um, or I just, my brain decides to release a memory, because that's what I tell people with trauma, you don't always know how or when your brain is going to release everything. Mm. And, you know, somebody may ask me a very specific question and I'm like, oh, I didn't even think about that. You know, like, okay, all right, well, maybe I, I, it takes me down that or it's, it helps me connect the dots. Mm -hmm. So I, I do, uh, I agree exactly what you said. Like it does help like it, uh, a lot. And I, I like to let people know that. So they know that maybe if they talked about their own pain mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't have to be in a public forum, but if they just talked about it, like you're not bottling it up inside and you can talk it through in a way that helps you process it. Because when we hold it in and we, we're just, it's just rattling around in our own brains. But if I sit down and I'm like, Merritt, I just want to run something by you. Mm -hmm. And me and you can talk it out together. Mm -hmm. you, may see the, you may see the story or hear the story differently than how I'm explaining it and have follow-up questions or say, you know, this is what I'm hearing. Or did you ever think about, and I'm like, no, I didn't. You know, because I'm just stuck in my own head constantly. So I think getting it out is, is extremely helpful because, you know, uh, Steve Harvey from, from the Kings of Comedy um, comedy show says, you know, he makes a joke about black people. He says, like, we don't see therapists. We don't go. We don't seek mental health help. And he says, we hold things inside until it becomes a physical ailment. Right. <laughs> Which is funny and true and not just for black people, but true for 
for people in general. And a lot of times in our industry and in, in first responder world, it is true. It does turn into physical ailments. It turns mm -hmm. into insomnia. It turns into heart issues. It turns into anxiety. It turns into all these things. If we're not going to like, you have to offload it at some point. We're humans, mm -hmm. like me and you were saying at the beginning, we're human beings. We're not built to take that type of stuff over and over and over again and expect to be okay. I like, you know, I like one person to tell me they've experienced trauma in a 20 to 25 years, sometimes a 30 year career and tell me they've only been married once. They've never yelled at their kids. They sleep well. They don't drink. If somebody can tell me that, you know, I, I would be really surprised, but I don't think that person exists. Right. I don't think so either. And, and that's, that is what needs to change is to be able to mm -hmm. recognize you even talked about that with your own situation, which was, you know, seek help regardless, go and talk to somebody regardless. And, yep. you know, the fact that your department handled everything the way that they did, I'm sure they threw as many resources as they could at you. What was the hardest time afterwards, despite even with your, uh, with your four-year-old saying those things, and then obviously trying to get him on track with school and his anxiety and stuff like that. And I know you talked about it, but what was like the hardest time for you as far as even noticing, you know, you talked about insomnia for some other people. I don't know if you had these symptoms that you started to develop and see to the mm -hmm. point where you're like, holy shit, like I have <laughs> PTSD. You know what I mean? I need to really get a hold on this. So, so, and, and I'm glad you brought up the PTSD because people will say that to me a lot. They're like, oh, you got shot. You have PTSD. And I said, well, that does not necessarily true because you have to right. be diagnosed with PTSD and you can have some of the symptoms, but not have full-blown PTSD. And I think what's helped me is the fact that I was in my therapist's office the day after I got out of the hospital. Mm. So with PTSD, a lot of times there's that lag in any type of support. And then those, you know, your, your, your trauma moves from the front of your brain to the back of the brain where those flashbacks and all those other things come from. And not that I didn't experience any of those, but mine weren't long-term. Right. Um, I've had insomnia for a long time. And now that I'm more educated on trauma and the, and the things that the job does, now I can pinpoint back in my rookie years mm -hmm. when my insomnia and my anxiety actually started but nobody talked about it back then. Um, but after the shooting, yeah, my insomnia was through the roof. Like my husband, I mean, he even says to me now, you never sleep. <laughs> like you never sleep. Mm. Um, you know, my mind will race or I, I, I had an issue where for some reason, my anxiety would get really bad at night. I don't know what it was. Mm. And um, at the time my husband worked overnight, so he was not home. Um, I would be here with the kids. I have an alarm. We have cameras, you know, all that good stuff. We have firearms. So you would think, you know, oh, you're pretty well protected. Like you're good to go. Mm -hmm. But at night, I would always feel like something was going to happen. I was checking on my kids. You know, you have a new baby and you check on the new baby like constantly. Mm -hmm. Like I that's what I was doing with my kids. And I had one night where I cannot tell you what triggered it. I still don't know to this day but I just felt like something horrible was going to happen. 
And I didn't like being at home with my kids by myself. I called, mm. I called my husband. He was at work. He, he couldn't, he didn't answer the phone at first. Um, I ended up having to call my, my brother who lives here and I'm just sobbing. He can't even understand me. So now he's all upset and he's like, do I need to come over? And I was like, no. And then my husband, it finally called me back. I'm on, he's like, I'm coming home. So he drops work and he comes home. My brother stays on the phone with me until my husband gets there. And like, I couldn't even breathe. Mm. And my husband just gets in bed with me and just lets me cry on him. And I'm, you know, now I'm feeling bad because he's not at work. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. Cause you know, he's the supervisor and he had to leave his shift and he's like, it's okay. And I said, are you going to go back to work? He's like, no, I'm here. Like, I'm not going anywhere. Um, so I've, I've had some of those episodes. I've had panic attacks at, at, uh, concerts, um, just the noise, the lights, you know, uh, maybe going to see a show at pyrotechnics. Is it the best idea after you've been shot? <laughs> just, I learned that, <laughs> um, you know, so I, I definitely deal with some of that stuff still. Um, and, you know, I talked to my therapist, obviously. Um, I talked to, you know, my doctor about it and things like that. And um, over time, I've learned different coping mechanisms to help bring me out of that. But, you know, I still get in those little slumps where mm -hmm. I just lay on the couch for two or three days at a time mm -hmm. um, or something may trigger me. And it's weird because, like I said, your brain will decide when it wants to release certain things. Mm -hmm. And I have weird triggers and I'm like, that, how does that even correlate to the, to the call? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like mm -hmm. for, for our brains, we want things to make sense, you know, and sometimes things just don't make sense. And I think that's one of the most frustrating things to deal with mm. is the triggers or the symptoms that just don't make sense. So um, I just, you know, I have to rely on my coping mechanisms and my family and my therapists and my friends to kind of get me out of that space um, and remind myself that I am, that I am safe. Mm. That's, um, you know, we can go into these coping mechanisms, you know, real quickly. I just wanted to know what helps you, what you've learned, because there could be listeners, there could be somebody that you could affect and they don't know. First one is talking. You got to talk. I mean, um, again, we're not built to experience what we're, what we do on our jobs and expect to be okay. Like you, you, you take your car in for its maintenance and mileage checkups and stuff like that, because you want your car to perform well, we have to do the same thing for ourselves. You know, we need to take better care of ourselves. And so that's a, that's a reminder to me. Cause I, you know, I didn't start having kids until my mid thirties. So, you know, I'm in my forties now with still younger kids, but I want to be active. I want to still be able to get up and go for them and not just for them, but for me too. But mm -hmm. I don't want to be angry mom and snapping at them and, you know, don't like being out in public and all these other things and all these other types of stories that I hear. So, you know, um, talking is a huge one. Um, not just, I know we hear this a lot, not just the being, being okay with not being okay, but you know, just, we're not going to be happy all the time. You don't have to be happy all the time. Like who wants to be happy all the time? You know, <laughs> I, and I, I don't, sometimes I kind of like just being chill and just maybe just reflecting on things and, and happiness looks like different things on different people, but it's, it's okay to not always feel your best. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's when we stay there too long that is the issue. Um, one of my biggest outlets that I found to really help me is going to spin class. A lot of people think I'm crazy. I said, but that is the closest I can get to the adrenaline rush that we would get at work uh, and push myself and remind myself when I want to quit, like you've already been in a situation where somebody could have killed you. Yeah. You know what I mean? This 45 minutes, this sweating and spinning and loud music is not going to kill you. Trust that me. Ain't shit. And I've even had times on the bike where I zone out and I'm pushing myself and I'm going and I'm going and I will start having flashes of my shooting. And I remember there was a tree that I was trying to get to. And so my, my, my mental thing when I'm spinning and I start to feel myself slow down is I picture that tree and I was like, you have to get to that tree. And then in my mind, when I see myself getting closer, I push it further back. It's like, you got to get to that tree. You know what I mean? And I push and I push. And even on days when I don't want to go, when I'm just like, I'm exhausted. I never hate myself for going, mm. you know, I never, you know, I, and I get to sweat it all out. Even when I'm frustrated, I get to like sweat it all out, spin it all out, listen to some good music, be around some great people in class and come out of there feeling like, okay, I feel like I accomplished something mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. right there. So, you know, and just, the other thing for me is I've tried a lot of different types of therapies. It's not just sitting and going to talk to somebody. There's a lot of different things you can do. I think we get fixated on speaking to a therapist mm -hmm. that we don't, there's so many, there's spin, there's other types of alternative therapies that you can do. You know, mm -hmm. you can do acupuncture, which I haven't tried yet, but um, you can do brain spotting, which I have tried. You can um, get a massage. You can do all these other things that help you kind of settle down a little bit mm -hmm. um and therapy help whatever you want to call it it's not one size fits all yeah. you know what works for me may not work for merit you know and vice versa but we can still share and we can talk about it and give each other ideas and not be like oh you see a therapist oh what there's nothing wrong with that. I love telling people I see a therapist so that it becomes more normal. Yeah. I just saw my therapist today. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it, it has to be normalized. And what's hilarious, not hilarious, but therapists even need therapists. They do. <laughs> because yes. they are they are in the well directly expose themselves to the trauma of the people that they are helping. So Vicarious they need help trauma. as well. Yes. Vicarious trauma. Exactly. 100%. You know, so, so yeah, I mean, those are, those are the things that just really, really helped me. Um, and doing things like this, yeah. you know what I mean? I've, I've had people hear an interview that I've done and reach out to me and say, Hey, I really like the things that you said, or I'd love to get more information, you know, about this or, or that. And, you know, so it's nice to know that like, you know, you can connect with somebody and be like, Hey, like you're not alone. Like there's a lot of us out here that are going through this. We don't always like to talk about it, but there's a lot more of us that are going through this than, you know, you like to believe like your teacher says, if one person has a question, at least three other people. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, look at the size of your agency. If you're going through that, there is at least five to in some larger departments 15 other people at your same precinct that are going through the same thing you're going through mentally that's that's for sure happening 
Mm-hmm. And, and most of the time, nobody speaks up and they go with what the worst case scenario is, which is they don't say mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lindsay, so. Lindsay McCall Long, honestly, I mean, I could talk to you probably for the next <laughs> two or three hours because you're just a wealth of not only wisdom and knowledge, but just your absolute, uh, your core, your energy is a survivor. You know, I go Thank back you. to when we first started this, you talked about the trauma that you had to endure. We haven't even, we didn't even talk about it, but of you talking about how your dad got shot and killed, you know, mm-hmm. that's trauma. And then, you know, ironically, here you are in a officer involved shooting, almost in the same situation as your father, you mm-hmm. know, and I'm sure those are things that you thought about, you think about, regardless, though, here's the thing. What I see you as is I see you as a survivor. I see you as a strong, resilient individual, not only in the action, not only in the shit of what's going on, but at the same time, you are so level-headed to the point where you can sit here and joke about certain things that happened in such a traumatic thing. And I think that's also another thing, right? Like humor isn't just... To, to redirect anything you have to you have to laugh you got to mm-hmm. be able to laugh in traumatic times and certain things yes, right like, and, and, and sometimes and, things are just funny sometimes yeah. even <laughs> even in a crazy situation like sometimes things are just funny and when you talk to people I'm sure as you've spoken to people if they talk about their critical incident just like the things that go through your head and it's like, well, that was such a random thought. Like, where did that even come from? So, and sometimes it is out of being uncomfortable, but a lot of times you're right. Like humor, it just, it just helps. It yeah. just kind of helps. It does. It does. You've, you've been an amazing um, inspiration. I know to a lot of people and how old is your son now? He just turned eight yesterday. Well, Tell him happy birthday from uh, from Merritt and uh, Brownie and Blue podcast. What's your son's name? Uh, Liam. Liam. Happy yes. birthday, my man. Turning eight. Your mother yes. is an incredible, incredible role model for you. Not only Ooh. in strength, but uh, just, just survival. And as he gets yes, older, yes. Lindsay, he's going to realize I got that from my mama. <laughs> oh, oh, big. Uh, yeah, I mean. My mom is awesome and my daughter, she's five. She is, she's going to be nothing to play with. And I, <laughs> I, I look forward to watching her as she gets older. And, you know, I just, you know, I want to be a good parent and I want to set good examples and, and instill confidence in them and let them know, you know, if they ever need anything, me and my husband are always here to, to help them through whatever. And, you know, just always believe in yourself. And if somebody tells you, you can't, you figure out a way that you can. Yeah, that goes into my last question for you to end this show. And we can kind of do it dual, right? Mm-hmm. What's the best advice that you've ever gotten? Why was it the best advice? And then also the second question to that, which goes with advice is, what would your advice be to those seeking to get into law enforcement? So the best advice I've ever gotten is actually from my mother. And it goes back to kind of what I just said about what I want to instill in my kids is the worst thing somebody can tell you is no. Mm. That's the worst thing they can do. So they tell you, no, you move on. You either figure out a different way to get what you want or you move on. And so that's actually helped me a lot, like not being in my head about things I didn't get. 
And it's like, okay, so they told me no. Let me examine why they told me no and see if I can represent myself to get what I want or go just go about it a completely different way. So like I said, that's something I, I want to instill in my kids is it's no, okay, it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and something I would tell somebody who wants to get into law enforcement, um, outside of the obvious stuff that they always tell us about, you know, like keep your same friends and, and all that stuff like that. But um, just what I said earlier, be a human, be a human when you're out here dealing with people do not think that you are better than anybody out here. Don't do it because you never know who you're dealing with. You never know how that person can like completely change your day. And it's Mm -hmm. really that thing of don't judge a book by its cover. Like don't do it because you will do more harm to yourself than good. Because when we get into labels, that gets dangerous because you begin to treat people like that label before they've given you the, the opportunity to see who they really are. Um, and you know, like I said, don't wait until shit's fucked up to go see a therapist. Don't do it. Take care of yourself, mind, body, and spirit. You know, that is a thing. All three of those things go together. If one is off, the other two can't survive. And I don't care on what combination it's in. So the same way you take care of your car, take care of your insides, go see your doctor, get your blood draw as much as you can get proper sleep. I know it can be hard. But when you don't, like you said earlier, Merritt, when we don't take care of those things, it comes out in negative behaviors, Mm -hmm. you know, and some of those negative behaviors will get you in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so ask yourself, is what I'm about to do worth my job? Is it Mm -hmm. worth my reputation? Mm -hmm. And I can't think of anything that really is, you know, outside of somebody disrespecting my child. I might have to lose my job over that, but other, you know what I mean? But to really think about it. So, you know, I, I, I want people to continue to come into our field. Um, and I love when young people are interested and I love that question um, because I would love to give people the type of information I was not given when I first came into law enforcement in 2003. It's amazing to hear everything that you've just talked about. And I'm inspired to say this one quote and it's a, I've probably overused this quote for those that know me and have listened to me talk just even personally, but the quote is a Swahili proverb. And it says, if you want to run fast, go alone. But if you run to run far, go together. And that's honestly mm-hmm. what I see with you is that we are running all together in law enforcement, but even with the community and bridging that gap. I thank you so much for coming on Brownie and Blue. This You're has welcome. been awesome, man. And uh, that's it. Where can people, if somebody does want to get in contact with you, where can they find you? Um, so my, I have, my email address is L-M-L-O-N-G-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G at gmail.com. So that's L-M-Long-Consulting at gmail.com. And I also have a website, um, Lindsay Talks. It's Lindsay with an A. If you spell my name with an E, we might have to fight. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying that. Um, but yeah, lindsaytalks.com. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if anybody wants to get in touch, um, I have no problem. I do peer support also for first responders. So, you know, if anybody ever needs anything, resources, anything like that, 
Um, I'm always here to listen. And if you need anything outside of our conversation, there's always resources and other uh, professionals that I can uh, refer you to. And you're on Instagram as well, correct? I am. I am. And I'm, I, I'm on Instagram under officer Lindsay talks, I think. Okay. (laughs) I have to look it up. (laughs) I'm so terrible. I'm so terrible, but I can get it to you. I can get it to you. Um, but yeah, so I just, you know, kind of venturing out and want to help people where, where I can. Okay. Well, you're helping a ton and you've helped me in this, uh, in this conversation. I thank you. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate that. I, I appreciated this conversation. This was a really good conversation. You're really, really easy to talk to. So that's always nice. <laughs> well, thank you. And uh, that's it for Brownie and Blue. Thank you for being here. All right.